All right, we'll be in Exodus chapter 20, looking at the first commandment. It is uh, there's a lot of pressure if you're first in a series. Uh, a lot of times what I'll do is I'll come to all the ones who go before me and take notes and learn from them and figure out how they, how they structured their sermon and, and all that. But when you're first, you don't get any of that. But also, when things are first, it, it shows us that they are important, and we're going to see that today. Um, oftentimes, you can see something by how important it is because it's first. So if you, if you look at your grocery list, a lot of times on our grocery list, the most important things are at the top. You know, your bread, your peanut butter, your bananas, Nutella, you know, so be it. But you get further down, you get further down in the list, on my list, I got things like a chainsaw, uh, an attic door, and those things have been on the list for months and months. They're not that important. So the things that the, the first are the more important. Um, in other cultures, this is something that shows really big importance is uh, the firstborn. So a lot of times in other cultures, the firstborn, and we even see that in the Bible a lot, they're the ones that inherit all the land, all the stuff that gets handed down. If you're really lucky and you're born into royalty, you inherit the whole kingdom. <laughs> Uh, so we see that oftentimes, and, and tonight I think we're going to see that in the Ten Commandments with the first commandment of just how important it, it really is. The first commandment is, is super, super important. So if we look to Exodus 20, verses 1 through 3, and God spoke all these words, saying, I am the Lord your God who brought you out of the land of Egypt, out of the house of slavery, you shall have no other gods before me. So I've got three points for us. Um, number one, God speaks. Number two, God saves. And number three, God commands. And so this, this first commandment is extremely important. I mean, some might even argue that it is the most important command, most important belief. I mean, this is fundamental to us as Christians. To, to say that you shall have no other gods before me is at the root of, of what we believe. There is one God, and we must believe him. But Exodus 20 starts with the words, and God spoke all these words. And so with my first point being God speaks, I want us to just take a step back for a second and think about that. God speaks. He talks, God sings, God yells, God communicates, God has a voice, God has words to say. Uh, he's got things to say to people. God speaks. He spoke. And this is huge. One of my favorite books, as you all might know, is, is the Chronicles of Narnia. And one of my favorite parts of that book is that in the very first book, when Polly and Diggory find themselves in this new world, Narnia, they fall in and they're surrounded by just darkness, nothing. And they don't know what to do. It's completely dark. And out of that darkness, they hear singing. And they're, they're not sure what's happening. And all of a sudden, they start to see some color. They start to see some grass. They see trees sprouting up. Um, and before you know it, they're standing in a, in a whole forest. And, in the, and they, they see kind of far off a lion. And it seems to be that this lion is the one that's singing. And after a while, they start to notice that the lion singing is actually what is creating all of this stuff to come into existence. And as we all know in that in that story of Narnia, that line is Aslan, and, and that is a, an example of God for us, and, and that is C.S. Lewis's way of, of 
describing um, creation in that story. And we know this to be true in the Bible. At the very beginning of the Bible, in Genesis, God spoke and the world was created. So, just from the, the sheer fact that when God speaks and a universe is created because of the words coming out of his mouth, we can rightly assume that when he speaks, it's important, and we should listen. And this verse, this passage starts with, and God spoke. So just that alone should tell us we need to perk up our ears and, and listen. Um, and a big part of, of speaking and talking is, is communication. A few weeks ago, I was, I was thinking about communication, and I, it's one of those things that you don't think a lot about, and if you think about it too hard, you're like, how do you even define this? So I ended up looking it up. And the main thing about communication is that it relays understanding. So when somebody communicates, there's understanding. That's the whole goal of communication. And so, uh, so when God communicates with us, when he speaks to us, he wants us to understand him. And we, we talked about this last week with John, Josh Womble's sermon was one of the ways that we can rightly use the Ten Commandments and one of the things that the Ten Commandments does for us is shows us that we can understand God and, and know his character. We can see what he likes and what he dislikes by looking at the things that he's commanded us. And so, what, what does he say? But before we get there, again, just going back to how important this is about to be, the whole chapter 19 in Exodus really builds up. It's like this whole build-up to chapter 20 and the Ten Commandments. In, in chapter 19, uh, Moses is going up on the mountain, and God is speaking to, to Moses. And every time God speaks, there's fire, and there's flames, and there's smoke, and there's this mountain, and there's thunder and lightning. And all of that is happening just because God is speaking. And so just from all of that build-up happening all throughout chapter 19, we can also think, okay, whatever he's about to say is really, really important because of all of that buildup that we get. And so, first thing that he says is, I am the Lord, your God. There is only one true God, and I am he, is, is what he says. And if you notice in your Bible, the word Lord there is in all capital letters, and this points us back to that conversation that Moses and God had where Moses is asking God, what should I call you? And, and God says, well, you can call me I am who I am. And we, there's not really a good way to translate that. It ends up being four letters, Y-H-W-H. You throw in some vowels in there, you get Yahweh. And Yahweh is usually, a lot of times in, in different translations, what you would see right there. It would say, I am uh, Yahweh, your God. I am the Yahweh, your God. And anytime we see Yahweh or the word Lord in all capitals, it's telling us that God is using his specific personal name, talking about himself. So right here when it says, I am the Lord, your God, he's reminding us that he's talking about only himself and no one else. Isaiah 42.8 says it like this, I am the Lord, all caps, that is my name. My glory I give to no other nor my praise to carved images. The second point tonight is God saves. So if we keep reading, I am the Lord your God who brought you out of the land of Egypt, out of the house of slavery. God saves. So if you go back again to last, last week's sermon with Josh Womble, he talked a lot about if you use something uh, wrongly, it can, be, it can be deadly, but if you use it the right way, it can be good. And he talked about his pocket knife, and I, I liked that. Uh, I thought it was funny. And so with the Ten Commandments, 
Um, it's very similar like that. We can't, we can't earn our salvation. We shouldn't be thinking about the Ten Commandments and thinking, I need to do these things to my best ability so that God accepts me. That's, that's the wrong way to think about it. We should be looking at the Ten Commandments. And the Ten Commandments should be reminding us that we are sinners and we need a Savior. We cannot live up to the standard that God has set through these Ten Commandments. And so what he's doing right here is he's saying, look, I've already saved you. You're no longer slaves. He's reminding them that God has already saved them. Before he even gets to them doing anything, God says, I've already saved you. So these Ten Commandments that I'm about to give you, they're not going to save you because I already have. And so he's reminding them of that. And he's also just reminding us of his authority. He's saying, I'm the one, I am the one who saved you, so listen to what I'm about to say. And as we know, you know, in the context of this story, um, God was, had just saved Israel out of Egypt, and we know that that story is only a shadow of what was to come, ultimately with Christ saving us from the slavery of our sin. And I can't help but to think of this image of, of Moses leading the people through the Red, sand, the red, uh, the red Sea, and the, and the ground is dry. I had never really thought about that about, until about a month ago. Somebody was telling me, like, oh, the dry... Dry ground means that it couldn't have been wind or anything like that because you've got uh, mud. If you were to move water, it would be muddy, but it's dry ground, and they're walking through the dry ground. So I can't help but to think, like, with every step that Moses was taking on that dry ground with water on both sides and all the people behind him, like, one step closer to salvation, to that other side of, of that sea and, and, and salvation from Egypt. And I can't help but think of the dry ground beneath the cross where every blood of Christ's body was dropped and each one of those blood drops saving us, that that salvation through Christ, um, through his blood on the cross, and that is, I can't help but to think of that, that God saves his people. Before we even get to the commandments, God saves his people. And so finally we get to the, the actual commandment, and it is, you shall have no other gods before me. And that's my third point, God commands. So God speaks, God saves, and God commands. What does this mean? Well, in the context of when these commandments were given, it was a, it was a pretty clear-cut command. It was uh, strongly focused towards this idea of idol worship. I mean, uh, when it says other gods, it's pointing out the fact that uh, this has already been happening, that other gods exist besides him, and that's, that's been going on. Even if we were just to look back at Egypt, where they just were, the Egyptians have all kinds of gods that they worshipped, and, and that, was, that was largely um, familiar with, with, with all the other nations outside of Israel, that they had, people were just making up gods. I think at some point in scripture it says, you guys have gods for the unknown gods. Like, you don't even know about this god, and you made up a god because of the unknown God. And so that people just make up gods and they worship those things. And God is saying right here, don't do that. Those are fake gods. Then um, I am the only true God. And he's, that's, that's the first commandment. He starts out with it. <clears throat> and this is pretty clear if you keep reading into the second commandment. I'm not going to steal next week's thunder, but, um, but these, two, these two commandments are, are closely related, and so if you just were to read on, that you shall not make for yourself a carved image, 
This idea of worshiping carved images is often how people portrayed their worshiping other gods. And so today's commandment is, you shall have no other gods before me. And to worship a carved image was how you displayed that uh, worshiping of, a, of another god. And so, um, of course, if you were to keep reading the book of Exodus, not too long after this commandment is given, Israel is already, before Moses even gets down off the mountain, they're already worshiping a false god. Uh, just in Exodus 32, we can read about uh, the people are basically impatient. Moses is still up on the mountain. I guess it had been a long while, and they, they got impatient. And so they go to Aaron, and they say, Aaron, let's make a, another god. And so they pile up all of their gold, and, and they all together build this golden calf. And then Moses comes down and, and is upset and angry because they have built this, cult, this golden calf. And they even go so far in that story to say, that this golden calf is what saved us from Egypt. Like they quote, God says right here, I'm the, I'm the Lord your God who brought you, brought you out of the land of Egypt. And in that story, they go so far to say, this golden calf brought us out of Egypt, which is really interesting that that comes up again, this, the God saving them out of Egypt. But eventually in that story, and how crazy that is that they are going to make a golden calf and worship that instead of the one true God. Eventually, in that story, it's, Scripture tells us that they sat down to eat and drink and rose up to play. So I think they just wanted to have fun. They, they wanted what they wanted. They wanted the desires of their heart. They wanted to be comfortable. They wanted to eat and drink and be merry and have fun and party and do, do what they really wanted to, and that which was really in their heart. So before you start to think that, oh, well, this commandment here, this first commandment, when it says, you shall have no other gods before me, that was Old Testament. Like, none of us are, are making carved images in our garages and worshiping down to those. Before you, before you think that, I, I, would, I would caution you to, to think again. Idolatry is really what's happening in our hearts when we place other things and give them more importance than the one true God. And that's what we're going to talk about for the, for the rest of this evening is, is idolatry, which is really what this, what, this, what this commandment is getting to. You shall have no other gods before me. Let me read you a section from Brad Bigney's book called Gospel Treasons. This whole book is about idolatry. And right in the first chapter, he's talking about our passage, the first commandment. In Exodus 23, God tells us that the number one commandment is you shall have no other gods before me. This is foundational. Now let me give you the de definition of an idol. An idol is anything or anyone that captures our hearts, minds, and affections more than God. So what could be an idol in your life? Anything. That's why we're in such trouble. Because absolutely anything can become an idol. Even a good thing, when wanted too much, becomes an idol. Idolatry is who or what you worship, what you long for, what your heart is set on. Idolatry is a big deal because it flies in the face of God. That's Brad Bigney in the book, Gospel Treason. And Matthew Henry also says this, whatever is esteemed or loved, feared or served, delighted in or depended on more than God, that, whatever it is, we do, in effect, make a God of when talking about this, this first commandment. 
So I want to give us a few warnings regarding idolatry. And these also uh, come from Brad, Brad Bigney's book. Number one, sin and idolatry are intertwined. At the root of sin is a choosing to follow our, our idols instead of following God. Basically what we say in our heart is that I want this thing, whatever it might be, more than I want God. And that is sin, and this is idolatry. Number two, idolatry is our natural tendency. If we read Romans 1, it says, For although they knew God, they did not honor him as God or give thanks to him, but they became futile in their thinking, and their foolish hearts were darkened. They exchanged the truth about God for a lie and worshipped and served the creature rather than the creator. We are born with this selfish desire. We are born with a craving for sin. And we're born with a will that is against God and against his commands. Our idolatry is our natural tendency. Number three, idolatry is never satisfied. Ephesians 4.19 says, They have become callous and have given themselves up to sensuality, greedy to practice every kind of impurity. And when it talks about being greedy to practice every kind of impurity, some versions say to practice every kind of impurity more and more and more. There's this greed associated with our lusts. There's a greed that's associated with our idolatry. It's this idea of we are never really satisfied when we are seeking after idols. We always need more and more and more. And in athletics, this is, this is often something that comes up. There's always another goal to be reached. Oh, if I could just win the state championship, then I win that state championship next week. If I could just win the national championship, all my dreams would come true. You win that national championship. If I could just win the world championships, that would be the best thing ever. And it's just this never-ending cycle of I need more, I need more, I need more. And you never feel like you are accomplished. You never feel satisfied. You never feel full. So we never end up satisfied when our heart is set on idols. Number four, idolatry is a threat to your soul. 1 Peter 2.11 says, Beloved, I urge you as sojourners and exiles to abstain from the passions of the flesh which wage war against your soul. Ultimately, idolatry is not having God at the center of your life. And God doesn't want just part of your heart. He wants all of your heart. He doesn't want to share it with anyone because he is a jealous God and he must have our whole heart. Idolatry is a threat to your soul. So idolatry is pretty serious. Living life with anything other than God at the center of it and at the focus as your highest desires is dangerous. And this is what the first commandment is all about. You shall have no other gods before me. And while we can't fully obey the Ten Commandments, that's, that's not a good way of us using the Ten Commandments to try to earn our way into heaven. And, and if I can just do these Ten Commandments as good as I can, I'll get into heaven. While we can't obey them perfectly, that doesn't mean we can't try. We should still be desiring these things. We shouldn't just read the Ten Commandments and think, well, I can't obey these things, so why even bother? That's not the attitude that we should have. Eric Little a missionary in China, often said, as Christians, I challenge you, have a great aim, have a high standard. 
Make Jesus your ideal. Make him, make him an ideal not merely to be admired, but also to be followed. And what he's saying there is Jesus was perfect. Just because we already know that we'll never be perfect doesn't mean we shouldn't strive for that per- perfection. When Jesus is our ideal, we don't just admire him. We strive after that perfection that he, that he lived. So with that being, that being in our minds, I also want to give us a few tips on how to handle idolatry. Number one, we can search our hearts. Psalm 139, 23 to 24 says, Search me, O God, and know my heart. Try me and know my thoughts, and see if there be any grievous way in me, and lead me in the way everlasting. And you might ask, how can we search our hearts? And you can start by taking a good look at how you spend your time and how you spend your money and how you spend your attention. Because oftentimes, how we spend those things show us the desires of our heart. How you spend your money shows us where your heart is. How, how you spend your time shows us where your heart is. The fact that I have a garage full of expensive bikes tells you all I care a lot about bikes. The fact that Josh spends a lot of time with his family shows us that he cares a lot about his family. So we can, we can examine ourselves and see where is my heart as I spend my time and my money and my attention and my energy. Luke 12, 34, these are the words of Jesus, for where your treasure is, there your heart will be also. Number two, repent. So number one, search your heart. Number two, repent. So once you've searched your heart, you've identified those idols, I've got too many bikes, we must repent. We must turn from those idols and turn to God. And this is simple, simple in understanding. You know, we've seen Josh a thousand times walk that way, do the U-turn, walk that way. And we all get it. But when in practice and application, it's a lot harder, right? To, to actually carry out repentance and to turn away from our, our desires. That's hard work, but it must be done. James 4.8 says, draw near to God and he will draw near to you. Cleanse your hands, you sinners, and purify your hearts, you double-minded. Number two, repent. Once we've done that, number three, guard your heart. Proverbs 4.23 says, keep your heart with all vigilance, or, or guard your heart with all vigilance, for from it flow the springs of life. Idolatry isn't something that we can just take care of overnight, or even in a week, or a month, or a year. Idolatry is something that is a, an ongoing battle that we must be aware of and be fighting against day in and day out. We must always be on our toes Just a few weeks ago, we had an entire sermon about Satan and how cunning and how deceiving and how tricky he is, and that's that's something that we need to be aware of, and and that's another reason why we need to be on our toes. An old hymn, A Mighty Fortress is Our God, reminds us of our enemy when it says, For still our ancient foe doth seek to work us woe. His craft and power are great, and armed with cruel hate on earth is not his equal. So we're reminded how crafty Satan is in, in, in trying to tempt us with our idols. Number four, set your heart on Christ. So we've got search your heart, repent, guard your heart. And number four, and finally, set your heart on Christ. That great hymn that I, I just quoted also says this. Did we in our own strength confide our striving would be losing? We're not the right man on our side, the man of God's own choosing. 
to ask who that might be, Christ Jesus, it is he. He must win the battle. Christ is the fulfillment of the first commandment. He came and he lived a life completely with God at the center. He never took his eyes off of Jesus. He never lived after other gods. He completely fulfilled the first commandment in his life. He is our example, and even more, he is our savior. And Jesus had a few things to say about idols himself. In the Sermon on the Mount, which is a a parallel to the Ten Commandments, in Matthew 5, we see the people sitting at the bottom of a mountain, and Jesus is about to speak to them. Very similarly to the Ten Commandments. The people are gathered around this mountain. Moses is on that mountain, and God is speaking to them the Ten Commandments. Well, in the the Sermon on the Mount, Jesus starts out with the Beatitudes, and in verse 6, we see him say, Blessed are those who hunger and thirst for righteousness, for they shall be satisfied. And if you remember from just a few moments ago, this is a lot of the same language that, that we're familiar with seeing with idols. This idea of satisfaction and a hunger and a thirst. When we were talking about our idols just a few seconds ago, those things that we hunger and thirst after, we're never satisfied with those things. But Jesus says those who hunger and thirst for what? For righteousness will be satisfied. That is how we're satisfied. What really satisfies us is there a hunger and a thirst for God and his righteousness. Later on in the Sermon on the Mount, Jesus also says, we cannot have two masters. You cannot serve both God and money. Or you could paraphrase it or say it another way, you cannot serve both God and idols. Whatever that idol might be, money, um, anything at all that would be, uh, you would be putting more emphasis and more focus on than God would be an idol. And ultimately, we must look to Christ if we have any hope of defeating our idols. It's not just a turning away from idols when we repent. It's a turning away from idols and turning to Christ. So if we're just honest, it's, that's not an easy thing to do, like I said, to turn away from the things that you desire. But with this turning away from idols is also a turning to something even greater. And we need to realize that. That when we turn away from idols, what we think is what we really want and what our heart's desires are, whatever that might be. When we turn away from those things, we're turning to something better. We're turning to God. We're turning to Christ, our Savior. One of my favorite Bible verses in Scripture is Psalm 37, verse 4. It says, delight yourself in the Lord, and he will give you the desires of your heart. And really, what's happening in that verse is kind of funny to me, it's kind of like a never-ending circle, because it says, if you delight yourself in the Lord, he will give you the desires of your heart. So if if the desire of your heart is the Lord, and you're delighting yourself in the Lord, it says that he's just going to keep giving you more of that desire. When you delight in God, he will give you more of that desire, more of that delight. He's going to give you more of himself. Ultimately, when we want God, he gives us more of himself. And in life, this is really the only way that our desires will ever be satisfied, is when God is our delight and our desires are him. As most of you know, I'm pretty avid cyclist. That's probably an understatement. The fact that most of my friends probably have me in their phones saved as Drew the Biker tells you how much of an emphasis on bikes and racing and all that is in my life. 
Um, and bikes are great. If every one of you guys went out and bought a bike right now and rode it, I would applaud you and give you a thumbs up, and I think that would be the, the best thing ever. So bikes are great, but if bikes ever become the center of my life, or the purpose of my life, or the reason that I live, then, then that's not how I'm called to live as a Christian. If my life is centered around bike racing and cycling, that's not how God has, has called me to live as a Christian. He must be the center of my life and the focus of, of everything that I do. Really, I'm not, I'm not living how God has designed me to live, and I'm not living how God has said is the best way to live, which is kind of funny. You know, I think that bike racing is, is so important and so good, and it's the best way to live, and yet God is saying that's not the best way to live. You don't know what's best for you. I know what's best for you, and the best thing for you is for you to live a life centered on me. And I'm small town when it comes to bike racing, and, and I struggle with this battle and this balance, and so I can't even imagine what it would be like if you were to win an Olympic gold medal. Like, imagine some idols in that situation. Like, training for years. Um, I've been training just for 17 years of my life. I can't imagine in the Olympics if you were to train for years and years and years to get to this athletic accomplishment. You finally have the performance of a lifetime. You qualify, you go there, you win, you get the medal, you get the wreath, you get to stand on the podium, those two losers next to you. You get that thing around your neck. Every athlete wants that gold medal. If you're in athletics, the, the highest accomplishment in the world is the Olympic gold medal. I don't know if you guys know this, but uh, in cycling, the, the color gold is solely allowed for the Olympic gold medal. So for the last five years, uh, there's one guy, and he has a gold helmet and a gold bike. I think he's got gold bands on his arms, and he is the only one that can wear that color gold, and it signifies that he's, he's won that Olympic gold medal. So you win it, and you go home, and you're the, the hero of, the, of your town. I can just imagine, like right here down Fairdale Road, I'm in the back seat, everybody's throwing roses, I've got that medal, maybe the bike, I'm even riding my bike, I don't know. Uh, everybody's asking me for autographs, the whole shebang, you know. <clears throat> and I'd imagine that that's a pretty good opportunity for, for idolatry to start to, to creep in, right? All of those distractions, all of those things that I've wanted for so long, desired, worked hard for, I've, de I've earned it, I've deserved it. Eric Little was, was a gold medalist. <clears throat> He's that missionary that I mentioned earlier from China. He won the Olympic gold medal, and I guarantee you he had his fair share of, of, of battles with idols. And it wasn't too long after that where Eric Little was killed in China serving as a missionary to unreached people. You know where his heart was set? Not on running. <laughs> Not on that gold medal. His heart was set on God. And you could see it. His life showed it. He went on to say that many of us are missing something in life because we are after the second best. Many of us are missing something in life because we are after the second best. An Olympic gold medalist, the highest athletic achievement in the world, and he says, you're missing something if God isn't first. So let's be the kind of people that live with God at the center of everything, with God as first in our lives, first in our desires, and first in our hearts, because 
There is no better way to live. Let's pray. Father God, I thank you for uh, the, the sheer fact that you've spoke to us. God, that we, we can open up a Bible with your words and read them and know them. And this gives us an understanding of you and, and helps us to see what you like and what you dislike. And we want to be the kind of people that have you at the center of our lives. We realize that, that we have idols in our lives. There are things in our lives that tempt us to turn away from you, tempt us to strive after more so than you. And, and we don't want that. We want to be, we realize that this is a battle and we want to stay focused with eyes set on Christ. We want to run the race set before us with endurance and with eyes set on Christ. So God, we pray that you would help us to do that. Help us not to have other gods before you. Help us to live out the first commandment and ultimately look to Christ who lived this first commandment. For he is our, our ultimate example and our Savior. And it is through his blood that, that we are saved. God, we thank you for that sacrifice. We thank you for the fact that he rose from the grave. We look forward to worshiping him this week and hearing more and more about that resurrection and celebrating that. Father God, we pray all these things in Christ's name.